in my place condemned, he stood the biblical pattern of atonement. The two acts of divine deliverance in the exodus from Egypt. Let me make these background comments. As precious and as life-changing as the gospel is, we need to resist the very easy growing tendency to define the Christian faith by the religious experience that it provides rather than the doctrinal truth claims defining it. Let, let me explain that. We all want better marriages. We want improved health. We want good finances. We want sobriety. We want bright future for our kids. These are the points where we feel life. These are the points where we tend to assess our faith. How is it working? This is where we tend to measure whether or not the gospel works. This is how we tend to measure whether or not the Bible is true. This is how we tend to measure whether God works. We put our experience at the center of our analysis and work out from that. And that, of course, is completely backwards. The problem with that process is it's it's hard to measure the value of New Testament truths like the atonement. I mean, we know the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, Jesus bearing my sins and God's wrath. We know it's important, but it centers on our sin, our guilt before God. And most of the people you rub shoulders with don't even believe in their guilt before God. And life works just fine for them. They have a job, it's as good as yours, they make as much money as you do, their kids are as happy, they're in university, they're getting scholarships. So the atonement, we're supposed to think it's important, but somehow it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a necessity in the same way that my paycheck feels like a necessity. Do you all understand what I'm saying? I can see my career, my wealth, my health, my marriage, my children, but the Savior's, quote, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Colossians 2.14. Who's ever seen that? The record is invisible. There are thousands of people that don't even believe it exists. And increasingly, many evangelicals don't worry as much about it. My, quote, record of debt that stands against me, it doesn't cause me as much loss of sleep as my visa bill. What I'm saying in all of this, it affects the way Christians come to assess the importance of the atonement. The atonement, through Christ Jesus, it's a doctrine. It's a teaching. It's rooted in history. But it doesn't make anyone necessarily rich or successful. It's not an experience in the same way that a fever or a cold or the flu or a shopping trip or a new car is an experience. It's initiated by a loving, holy, 
God to deal with my sins. And in our relativistic, sin-denying culture, this guilt before God is not a big issue. This is really important. Some more progressive evangelicals right in the church are starting to question and negotiate on the viability of these old views of the atonement. How do we know what we are to consider relevant and important about Christ's atoning work? Certainly you're free to change your view on the meaning of the atonement if you'd like. You can live the same way as you did before. I'm probably not making the simple point that I'm wanting to leave with you. Here it is. Let me try one more time. Sooner or later, every Christian has to determine why correct beliefs matter, if they matter at all. Why is clear thinking on something like the atonement important when I can't measure any immediate outward difference in the lives of two people who hold completely different views. <laughs> I read years ago a brilliant article in the Christian Century by William Placker, and he writes on the relationship between our doctrines and our lives. And he, and he touches on a great thought that not many Christians take the time to really process but it's deadly not to know this truth. Let me read this. It's a quote. It's probably true that when the dogmatic principle, don't be confused by that. By dogmatic principle, he just means doctrine, our, our beliefs, our theology. He calls it dogma, doc, dogmatic principle. It's probably true that when the dogmatic principle in religion is slighted, religion goes along for a while on stirred-up emotion and ethical intention. Morality touched by emotion. But then it loses the force of its impulse and even the essence of its being. Listen. Even if I have a warm personal relationship with Jesus, I also need an account of what's so special about Jesus... to understand why my relationship with him is important. If I, if I think about dedicating my life to following him, I need some idea as to why he's worth following. Without such accounts and ideas, Christian feeling and Christian behavior start to fade into some generalized fuzziness and social conventions. The degenerating power of a false view on something like the substitutionary atoning death of God the Son, it isn't something that manifests itself overnight. But solid Christian life and hope can't be sustained for long without it. The truth is we need the Bible to set our minds straight on the atonement. We need divine revelation because without it, we don't know very much 
or think very accurately about the most important things pertaining to our eternal destiny. I mean, we'll measure the ultimate realities of life by our own concepts of fairness and appropriateness and relevance Without biblical revelation, there are a million voices telling you what you should think about and what you should care about. The second portion of the title of this teaching series was The Biblical Pattern of Atonement. In my place condemned he stood. The Biblical Pattern of the Atonement. And what I want to say in that is that biblical teaching on the atonement doesn't just begin in the New Testament with a few scattered verses that people can argue in different ways. What I'm going to do today, I have probably a bit more scripture to read than usual, and I hope you can follow along. I want to turn our attention to one of the foundational accounts on the meaning of the atonement. And it takes place centuries before Jesus ever drew a breath. So here we go. Exodus 12, 1 to 12. Exodus 12, 1 to 12. I hope you have a Bible in some form or another. You know this account, what it's about. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until... This is interesting. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So they've got this lamb. It's going to be in the house. Did the kids feed it? Did they give it a name? When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Wow. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's the word right there. Remember it. For I, this is God, okay? This is not Satan, this is God. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments 
I am the Lord. It's one of the best known accounts in the Bible. But if the story is well known, it's, it's not carefully enough studied. We can assume its meaning without digging into some important details. And here are details in this account that will launch a chain of teaching in the rest of the scriptures about the nature, the method of God's atoning work. So from the time and perspective of the Exodus, it would probably be very difficult for Moses to imagine the way Father God would use the account of the Passover that took place there to prepare the whole world for an understanding of God the Son coming. Remember John the Baptist, the Lamb of God. Moses probably can't imagine all of that yet. Today I want to just press home two points. And we'll do more next week. So point number one. The power and blessing of the atonement are first of all pictured in terms of an actual deliverance from a terrible bondage. I mean, that's the most obvious point of God's delivering work for Israel in the Exodus. These are not a free people. True, many of the younger uh, Israelites would be used to Egypt. They probably knew nothing else growing up there. But the truth is, none of them were free. They weren't their own people. They weren't living out their God-given destiny. They served a dominating power, and they needed deliverance. They couldn't free themselves. They couldn't overpower the might of Egypt by mere resolve or effort. Unless God freed them, they would not be free. So in the Exodus model, God makes visible the kind of deliverance that takes place today invisibly in the realm of his kingdom through the cross of Christ. The New Testament says that. I was looking at Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that's Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Look at he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. There's the deliverance. Look at the Hebrews text. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and does this sound like Exodus language? Deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the New Testament answer to the question we asked earlier. What is so important about the doctrine of the atonement? We want a faith that's about life. And the New Testament answer to that is to frame the cross of Christ in the same terms as the exodus from Egypt. There's a deliverance at stake. The writer of Hebrews couldn't be more direct. He uses this Passover language, right? 
to deliver all those who are subject to lifelong slavery. 15. We're meant to hear those words. Deliverance. Slavery. They sound like Exodus, don't they? They sound like Egypt. So the cross isn't just a message about how God understands our suffering. You know, so you're having a bad day. Don't worry, Jesus had a bad day too. He can relate. Good night. That's not what the atonement's about. And it isn't just God telling us that he'd like us to join his cause of humanitarian good deeds around the globe. You should, but that's not what the atonement is about. Look at it again. He, Father God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing. There's a victory. That through death you might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. It's all the time I can take on that first point, precious as it is. There's a deliverance, an actual deliverance. They couldn't free themselves. God had to do something. And the New Testament says that's exactly where Don Horbin is. But there's something else. This is the one I want to take a minute with. A second deliverance that I believe is being intentionally, I think, edited or at least marginalized in much of the current progressive thinking and writing about the doctrine of the atonement through Jesus Christ. So this is point number two, and this is the last point. But I don't want you to think we're quite almost done. There's a little work here. It is through the cross of Christ and only through his cross that we are delivered from the wrath of a holy and just God against sin and sinners. Okay, so we know there's deliverance in that Exodus passage from Egypt. And I talked about that. An actual deliverance that God has provided for us. What's the nature of the deliverance? And I'm saying it is only through the cross that we're delivered from the wrath of a holy and just God against sin and sinners. You can see this in the Exodus account, but you have to look for it. So I want to pick up now, if you have your Bible open still, at the very next verse from where we stopped reading. Exodus 12. And we read 1 to 12. I want to pick up at 13. So the blood they were putting on the mantle on the door. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, we used to sing an old hymn. Remember that? When I see the blood, I will pass over. Hence the name, Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. He's talking to Israelites here, not Egyptians. That's important. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Why is he doing all this stuff? It's just this rigmarole that they have to do. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. 16, on the first day, you sh this is still all 
related to the Passover. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work will be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. And on this very day, I brought you your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Do you see all the details? I mean, it's almost monotonous reading. 19. For seven days. And there's a point to reading this. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. And then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord, this is God, the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. I, I know that's a long text. I get it. But I want you to stay alert. We're, we're given some very special words. God, through Moses, tells the people, tells the people how they are to interpret the events, all of those details. He tells the people how they are to permanently establish the observance of the Passover and, and they're to explain the meaning of it to their children. They're to teach their children this. So in other words, here's my point. We know that the meaning of this event isn't left up to the people to invent. This is not just the cultural evolution of some religious ritual. Religious ritual. God interprets his own work. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, and he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So the death of the firstborn is the tenth plague. If you know that account, it's the tenth plague of judgment sent by God to bring Pharaoh to his knees and let Israel go free. And there's something you just can't miss. There's something that's a key to this. There's something absolutely unique about the tenth plague. And I don't just mean its severity. There's something else that's absolutely unique. And if you miss it, you'll never understand the atonement in the New Testament. All of the first nine plagues, at least as far as we're 
specifically told, all of the first nine plagues were no specific threat to Israel automatically. The text is pretty dutiful to repeat that the first nine plagues fell only on the Egyptians. God made sure of it. You can, you can see it in Exodus 8, 20 to 23. And for you guys up there, I'm not going to read all of these. I'm sorry. You can see it again in Exodus 9, 1 to 4. You can see it again in Exodus 9, 23 to 26. I would just read that last one, okay? Let me just go through these. Exodus 9, 23 to 26. I'm only reading one, but all of these passages say the same thing. Then the Lord stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Look, the hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree. This is devastation. Now look, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Okay, so that's only one example of all those texts that I could have read. It said over and over again. The point is, Israel was protected from the first nine plagues automatically. This is really important. There was nothing specific that she had to do. But that was not the case with the 10th plague. I took all that time to read those long passages so we could see a process, a very tedious, repetitive, detailed, prolonged process that everyone had to observe to escape the judgment of God. But why? Why is that so? Why the sudden change? with this 10th plague. What is going on here? That's what we're supposed to think through. Can't God just destroy the firstborn of the Egyptians? Wouldn't that work? I mean, if God destroyed just the firstborn of the Egyptians and Israel was automatically spared, I would think that that would be pretty convincing to Pharaoh. Wouldn't that make him want to let them go just as much? I think the obvious answer is yes. What difference would it make to Pharaoh that Israel was going through the process of killing lambs and painting their houses with blood? It had no effect whatsoever on Egyptian households. It had no effect on Egyptian households, what Israel was doing. And the answer, please, gives one of the most profound explanations of what's going on when Jesus, our Passover lamb, shed his blood on the cross. Because clearly, in this Exodus account, there are two different rescues going on, and we need to appreciate them both and understand them both if we're going to have a fully formed view of atonement in the New Testament. First, we looked at it. By means of the judgment of God, there's deliverance from the tyranny of Egypt. We 
We see that powerfully fulfilled in the New Testament. We receive deliverance from the powers of darkness and bondage. But second, by means of the Passover sacrifice, there is deliverance from the wrath of God, right? I took time to labor the fact that this wasn't the angel of death, or this was God going through the land and taking the firstborn. The text says it over and over again. It was God. Israel has to have blood on the doorposts. It's not for the forgiveness of sins. There's no mention of forgiveness anywhere in that text. It is solely to protect them from the judgment of God. Any honest reading of the text has to come to that conclusion. God didn't say, if I see the blood on the doorposts of your house, I will forgive you your sins. What he says is, the firstborn will be spared. My wrath won't come on you. That's just what that passage says from beginning to end. And here's where I want to wrap up. Unlike the first nine plagues, there is no automatic deliverance from the holy wrath of a just God. Blood has to be shed. Israel was as vulnerable to God's judgment as Egypt. The Passover lamb wasn't slain to protect Israel from Egypt. The Passover lamb was slain to protect Israel from the judgment of God. That's just what the account says. biggest problem for Israel wasn't just Egypt any more than the biggest problem for Don Horbin is just the economy or my low self-esteem. The biggest problem for Israel was the just wrath of a holy God. One other thing. Now I'm wrapping up with what I want to start with in the next teaching. Very significantly, Jesus emphasizes this very text to self-describe his own death. We've invented phrases. They aren't in the New Testament. We've invented phrases. Tonight, we're going to have communion. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Tonight, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's not in there anywhere either. Nothing wrong with them. They're terms we've come to use to describe the event. I want to show you how Jesus very deliberately links his death with this Passover account that we've just been reading. It's in Luke 22, 14 through 16. And when the hour had come, this is at the end of his life, reclined at the table and the apostles with him, he said to them, this is Jesus, I have earnestly desired... eat this Passover with you. Jesus could have picked any image he wanted to describe his death. Which one does he pick? He picks the one where God goes through and strikes down all that aren't covered by the blood. Jesus says, you see, look at me. I'm the fulfillment of that, Jesus says. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing on the cross. This isn't guesswork. This isn't just something, oh, it goes back to John Calvin. and No, it, it's in your Bible. 
Well, Pastor Don, that's just because Jesus hadn't died to fulfill the scriptures. So, of course, he would just use Old Testament terminology. It doesn't work. The argument doesn't work. You don't have this. I didn't get this in time for a slide. But look up 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing about the death of Jesus. The, the Apostle Paul writes after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He writes to a church. This is New Covenant language that he's using. This is where we live. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. And Paul is talking about purity in the church. And he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a whole new lump as you really are unleavened. Remember all those references in the Exodus account about leaven, things being unleavened. Now look what Paul says to the church. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That tenth plague and its remedy, they prepare us all for a deliverance from a greater threat than Egypt. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the lamb killed and the firstborn spared. Everyone needed the Passover lamb, Jew and Gentile. And Jesus self-identified as that Passover lamb. In fact, everyone still does need that Passover lamb, the death of Jesus. Did you follow me through all that stuff? We covered a lot of turf. Beliefs matter, Lord. They matter a lot. Your word deals in propositional truth. Aimed at our heads and then down into our hearts to teach us to cherish the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God is both just and the justifier, Paul says. Make us alert. Make us alert to small deviations from biblical truth. Not just so we can be right, but so we can be safe in the truth of your word. In your name I pray and I thank you. Amen.